1: Hello everybody, welcome to the Moisture Festival podcast. I am comedy stunt performer
0: Matt Baker and I am comedy magician Louis Fox. We are both performers at the Moisture Festival. The Moisture Festival if you're unfamiliar is a
1: four week festival celebrating variety arts in the Fremont neighborhood of Seattle. It is the largest festival of its kind in the world and features some of the best entertainers
0: and comedians working today. The festival happens in the months of March and April, and not only do they have world-class variety acts, the Moisture Festival also hosts a week of burlesque shows.
1: If you're listening to this during the festival, be sure to buy your tickets now, because 95% of the shows sell out. You can get tickets to all the shows by visiting the website moisturefestival.org. In today's episode, we have one of the founders of the Moisture Festival,
0: Mr. Tim First. We're going to hear about his beginnings with the Flying Karamazov Brothers, the Oregon Country Fair, and about him riding a camel.
1: (laughs) It's a pretty great episode, lots of fun stories, and we hope you enjoy it. So this is a very exciting day here at the Moisture Festival podcast studios. We have one of the founders of the Moisture Festival, one of the original members of the Flying Karamazov Brothers. We have Timothy Daniel First in the studio.
0: Wow, he gets full name treatment. You Good morning a- is how
2: I'm listed
1: on SAG. So
0: what the- <laughs> you and a serial killer
2: get
1: that. <laughs> now, do you prefer Timothy or Fyodor Karamazov? Do you go by both?
2: Uh, I prefer Tim. Okay. Ah. It's shorter, easier to pronounce. <laughs> it's that one syllable.
1: Now, you let, we're going to cover a bunch of stuff today, so let's just start at the beginning. You Are you from Palo Alto? You're from San Francisco? Uh,
2: born in San Francisco, grew up in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. went to Stanford, spent two years in between the architecture and philosophy departments, and then was drafted. Oh, wow. Uh, oh. As a conscientious objector, I had to find work in the national health, safety, or interest. I tried to find a job that not only met the government's regulations of being, quote-unquote, in the national health, safety, or interest, but also... Mine of doing something I was interested in doing in a place that I wanted to live, earning a living wage. Uh, of course, the government tried to make those two things mutually exclusive. Of course. <laughs> However, I did manage to find a job at the Stanford Medical Library where I spent two years serving my country trying to decipher doctor's signatures. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the, uh, at the medical library, I had enforced quote unquote coffee breaks and a lunch break. And rather than going into the break room, which was filled with, well, I don't know about filled, but usually had a couple of stereotypical elderly uh, female librarians uh-huh. Uh-huh. who, in retrospect, weren't that old. Uh,
0: <laughs> I feel like everyone back then was older. Like Yeah, yeah when you're in your 20s, definitely. Uh, I feel like I'm my grandma's age when I was a kid and she was 900.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: So anyway, instead of sitting in a room with people smoking and drinking coffee, I would go out into the courtyard and juggle just for my own amusement. Ah. And that's when I really started uh, juggling in earnest. I learned to juggle three oranges from my father uh, when I was, I don't know, junior high age maybe. But didn't do anything other than a couple times a year, pick up three oranges and juggle them for mm-hmm. a minute. All
0: uh, right. Now you're, so your dad juggled?
2: He could juggle. Okay. He, he was not a juggler. What he did do was swing Indian clubs when he was yeah. in college in UCLA. At UCLA in the 1930s, he took up Indian club swinging, which at the time was part of gymnastics. And so when I was in junior high, he taught me how to swing Indian clubs.
1: How cool is that? Uh-huh. So you you learned to do the swinging as a child?
2: I, I learned to swing Indian clubs in the gymnastic style, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very formal style, before I started juggling. And one of the things that got me into juggling, other other than picking up three oranges occasionally was the first time I went to the California Renaissance Fair, I saw a juggling show and for the first time, and the person there was juggling clubs, and I asked to look at one, and the person was very hesitant because at the time <laughs> there weren't very many people making juggling clubs mm, in the country, uh, and they were very expensive and a little delicate. Oh, gotcha. But I picked one up and then started doing club swinging moves with it, and suddenly he was very interested in what I was doing, uh, so I showed him some club swinging, and he showed me some juggling oh, that's great uh and do you
1: remember who that was?
2: I probably will
1: at two o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> So you go up to the guy, you say, hello, my good lad. (laughs) May I gander at your... (laughs) Can I see one of those clubs? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So
2: that that worked out, and that's when I started juggling uh, as an actual hobby.
1: That's great. So the government paid you to juggle, essentially. Yeah. Your tax dollars (laughs) at work. And so you're training, and are you at Stanford University going to school there, Mm. or is this after you graduated?
2: I... No and no. This is after my sophomore year is when I was drafted Okay. Uh, because I did not have a student deferment because I didn't believe there should be student deferments. So when I registered at the age of 19 instead of 18, I immediately applied to be classified as a conscientious objector, which Ah. was granted. And so then I was drafted during the summer in between my sophomore and junior year. And then spent the next two years working at the medical library, juggling as a hobby. Uh, When the two years were up, I was trying to decide whether to go back to Stanford. There had been some funding cutbacks. The architecture department had become a division of civil engineering. The design half of the department left, so I started looking at other places like Cal Poly. I also thought about maybe putting together a juggling show because at that point street performing in San Francisco was just starting to happen. Yeah,
1: starting. That's like around seventy two, seventy three. Exactly. Uh, and so, did you go out? Did you decide to put together the show? No, or? I
2: decided that was too much work. <laughs> uh, Architecture so easy. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, I had so, uh, but I had saved enough money that I figured I could uh, wait to decide whether to go back to Stanford go to some other university, get a job, or put together a show. And during that time, through a mutual friend, I met Paul and Howard, Mm -hmm. who had started performing together while at UC Santa Cruz. And we became friends, and we would get together occasionally to juggle. And did Um, you meet them through juggling? In a funny way. um, A friend of mine whom I had taught to juggle had gone to UC Berkeley, and walking across campus one day... She saw someone else juggling, and at the time, juggling wasn't that common, Yeah, and so the, t- the two of them started talking, and they each basically said, if you think I juggle well, you should meet the person who taught me to juggle, ah. and he was a high school friend of Howard's uh, and mentioned that a couple of weeks later, sometime soon, Paul and Howard would be performing at the Spring Fair in Santa Cruz, and so Heather and I went down to Santa Cruz and met Paul and Howard and became friends and started hanging out occasionally and juggling together and then in 75 i think it was when they started uh doing more hour-long shows around the campus they asked if i would join them as their technical director Mm. and so i started running lights and sound for their show and building props
1: what was the name? Were they the Caramazo brothers at that time, or were they... Was there a different name? The...
2: Well, they started out as Patterson and McGee. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not quite as yeah. catchy. And then... Not as good of a read. <laughs> right. yeah. for, for a while, they used uh, Snout and Glib. Ah, that's, that's not bad. Uh, yeah, I like that one. It, yes, based on Paul's nose and Howard's speaking. Ah, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, and then when Randy joined them in the summer of 1974, when they were hitchhiking up to perform at the World's Fair in Spokane, they realized that they needed a new name, and one of them, probably Howard, was reading the Flying Karamazov Brothers and camped out one night. They decided, they realized that their personal characters were vaguely related to three of the brothers' characters in the book. Uh-huh. And so they decided that the name the Flying Karamazov Brothers would be a great literary joke, and they could always change it. Yeah, It made them laugh. They had no idea if it would make anyone else laugh. <laughs> it turned out it didn't. Yeah. Also it turned out that no one could spell it or pronounce it, but the name that stopped. might be a
1: blessing in disguise, though, right? Yeah. It sounds like it's some sort of Russian troop. Right. It sounds or... like a Russian sort of thing. Sounds exotic. Yeah, to... right. absolutely.
0: More more so than than glib and pokey or glib and <laughs> snout. Yeah.
2: Glib and snout. Snout, <laughs> and, glib. snout and, glib, yeah. and glib. So it actually, but if you it, came it, in,
1: it'd be snout glib and stash, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: it did make for one odd occasion. Some years later, when we were performing at the Cleveland Playhouse this is probably sometime in the 80s, a visiting Soviet delegation, including Edward Shevernaza, um <laughs> happened to be in Cleveland. They're like, we
0: gotta see have, this. They happened well, to be in
2: Cleveland. They thought they were going to see a production of the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. <laughs> they were surprised.
0: <laughs> Did they like it, though?
2: Um, wh- hard to say whether they liked it. Their, the press secretary wrote an article which appeared in the Russian press about how... The Flying Karamazov brothers were obviously trying to discredit Russians in the eyes of the American people, Uh, because we dressed, unknown to us, we were dressing in Russian peasant garb, uh, and of course, we were juggling sickles and torches at the time, Uh, and so clearly, we were trying to discredit Russians. Interesting. Wow. An American scholar who happened to be familiar with our group and who happened to be studying in uh, the Soviet Union at the time wrote... A letter to the editor saying that uh, actually no, you misunderstood. This is an American comedy group, nothing to do with Russia. Mm-hmm. It takes the characters from Dostoevsky, and then the person who wrote the original article wrote a response, also published in the letter to Naya Gazeta, saying no, no, clearly you too have been duped. They must be in the pay of the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> At which point our question was, where's the check? Yeah, yeah.
0: right? <laughs> where's my pension? Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but
2: anyway, uh, I digress, yeah. as usual. And
1: did did you ever make it to Russia to perform? Were you allowed in?
2: As the Flying Karamazov brothers know, mm-hmm. one issue that we were up against was because we used so much language in our show. Yeah, um, uh. yeah. Producers were very hesitant to book us except in English speaking countries. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. basically meant that most of our overseas performance was in former reaches of the British Empire. Uh, uh, yeah. England, Ireland, yeah. Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, international arts
1: festivals in Hong, Hong Kong, yeah. Singapore. Especially comedy because it's so nuanced around language. And, that... and,
0: and local, like what I call a shoe may not be what, even though we speak yeah. English, may not translate. Yeah,
2: it's true. I mean, the first time we performed in London, we realized that we needed to translate the show. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, from American to English.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, it's like even working in Canada, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't translate. Oh, yeah. And it blows my mind. I'm like, where? Yes. Yeah.
2: You, know, you say that you juggle torches and people say, so what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because to them, it's what we would call a flashlight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, That's so dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> yeah. on, on the other hand, we'd, we were able to have some fun when going on uh, English television shows, not during the show itself, but during camera rehearsal. One thing that we did, I think, on the Paul Daniels show was what we called the terror trick, which was juggling nine different objects. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of which is a large meat cleaver, and each object is in, is introduced individually. So for the camera rehearsal, when Howard went to introduce it, uh, he came out, held up the meat cleaver, and said, "And this is me big chopper," <laughs> which, if you speak English, Mean means something entirely uh, different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to back it up a little bit. Okay. Did you ever get your degree from Stanford or your uh, degree at all? Uh, not yet. Okay.
1: Still working on
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I, I any it honorary degrees?
1: There. I would think at this point uh, with your no, celebrity. I did, you might...
2: uh, did get the key to the city in Darwin, Australia. Oh, wow. Nice. So, what, does, what does that get you? Um. <laughs> into the post office, you can get into city hall. You can use the mayor's bathroom. <laughs> I wish. Do
0: you still have, is, it, is it a physical key or a um, ceremonial it key? A,
2: well, it, yes, it's uh, a ceremonial physical item. I'm not sure if Howard or Paul has it at the is it, moment. Is it in but, the
1: Karamazov Museum well, somewhere?
2: There, well, there is no comprehensive Karamazov ah. Museum yet. I'm actually in discussion with a university about donating the archives, uh, but that's not confirmed yet. Oh, that's cool. But I'm, something I'm hoping to do. Absolutely. Because that'd I want be to get 50 boxes of stuff out of my basement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will happily have some of your Karamazov stuff in my house. I'll store it. <laughs>
2: Careful what you say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you
0: get all like the, <laughs> here's a bunch of ticket stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great. I'd love that. So uh,
1: you guys were really and even today probably the most famous juggling group and i don't know if it was if it's juggling in particular or if it was the timing in which you guys came up but really there hasn't been anybody that has sort of equaled you in your success I mean
0: even as a solo juggler no i mean let alone a team yeah
1: yeah and, I, I
2: think part part of it was timing part of it was That we put together a two-hour theater show. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Appealed to people who weren't that interested in juggling. Ah. So uh, Paul and Howard thought of juggling as an excuse to get people to look at them while they talked. Um, (laughs) So
0: I
1: I enjoyed the juggling. Yeah,
0: (laughs) you share Matt's view that you have to make juggling palatable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely. Well, I mean, honestly, like I grew up in Oregon, and I grew up watching you every time i saw you it was a different type of show it was like it had a different theme or different routines and i mean to have a 2 hour theatrical comprehensive show with juggling that an audience can pay attention to and actually like is a huge accomplishment yeah, on its and own
2: it, and it took a lot of work i mean yeah. we put together we always told people that although yes we're performing at this festival and doing these street shows. What we actually did was theater shows. Yes. And then someone booked us to do a theater show and we had to write one. Ah. Yeah. It um, always uh,
1: seemed like you were actors and who could juggle. Is that how I always viewed it. You're the. Well, I think you were the juggler of the group, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: They always used to joke that the group's technical director was the best juggler. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it's true. But what, what happened was when we started playing, so uh, we were performing at the Magic Cellar in San Francisco. You know, I had built a lighting system to go into the club because uh, the lights in there sucked for juggling. Mm-hmm. And we had put together a four-person juggling piece. So with very little notice, we thought we'd put it on stage to see what happened. And because we didn't really prepare for it, they adapted lines for another piece, and I simply didn't see anything. Uh, I left the light board, ran up to stage, we did the piece. I went back to running the lights and sound. And at the end of the show... And the, Well, not only did the piece work well, but we got a lot of comments about how well it worked to have three people who talked incessantly in a silent character. <laughs> so we figured, great, this is easier than writing lines yeah. in a silent character.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it is fascinating, I think, to have three, three people who just gab, gab, and then one guy who's just completely dead silent mm-hmm. and stoic, right?
2: Yeah, and it seemed to work fairly well. But then when we started touring, uh, we started going across the country, well, up and down the West Coast in the late 70s and then to the Midwest in New York in around 1980, and we were uh, trying to develop more material. We had a two-hour show, and then a producer offered to produce our show on Broadway, which we did in 1983, Yeah, and then we were approached by a New York booking agency to tour the Broadway show, which got us into the... Regional theater circuit. Yeah. And so we started doing our show around the country. Then we discovered that the regional theaters didn't want to bring the same show back yes. year after year. Yeah. So we wrote another show <laughs> uh, and started, we were able to bring that back to some theaters. It's amazing. And we ended up basically writing a new show about every two years. That's wow. Which meant, I barely have one show I over know. 10 years. Yeah, which meant that we would spend. <laughs> But we would write a show. It would change a lot during the first several months of performance. Of course. um, As we tweaked it and realized, well, this thing doesn't really go, but maybe we can take this piece from an older show. It'll fit here. And then the show would stabilize after performing it for three to six months. And then after about a year, we'd start working on the next show, which would take about a year to develop.
0: Yeah. So you don't buy into the old advice I was given as a kid where it's like, make one show you can do your whole life
2: that works depending upon where you're performing it okay yeah i mean there are some people who indeed develop a show or which might be eight minutes it might Mm -hmm. be an hour on rare occasions it's two hours and then they uh just perform that for the rest of their
0: lives we were talking about a guy who who had done that and then all of a sudden the world changed and his show is not sellable anymore. Mm. Right. Yeah. And he's he should be at the coasting phase of his career. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and so now he's got to completely start from scratch. So, like, I can't imagine writing a two-hour theater show every two years. That's... And even
1: today, I mean, the Karamazovs is a different incarnation than, you know, the original members. But they even, the Karamazov still had a show that came out in 2019 that was a new, newest show, right? Well,
2: actually, it was an old show that oh. was reworked. <laughs> um,
1: when you have that much material, you can mine it, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. And
2: also, when you have uh, different people uh, coming in uh, to the group uh, to perform, it helps yeah. to take advantage of their individual strengths. Absolutely. And work around their individual weaknesses, and so, ideally, a show will get modified uh, any time a new person comes in. Yeah.
1: Now, do you think that the broad- when you did the Broadway show, when you Looks had the Looks like producer,
0: you did three times.
1: Was that the big break for the Karamazovs? Was that, like... Or was it the when you did the comedy of airs at Lincoln Center that aired on PBS? Was that the big break? What was the thing uh, that sort of launched you into this sort of I, household name?
2: I, I think we're still waiting for that big
1: break. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean i I mean I, I grew up in a Oregon, so
0: I was a little bit more exposed to vaudeville. Right. And, I remember the my stepdad when I was a kid before I was into performing mentioning like, oh, these guys are amazing. People bring. Three random things, and they juggle. Yeah, and it's something that just you know, I was maybe doing a couple card tricks at that point. I wasn't a performer by any stretch, and I was like, I, "That stuck in my head thirty-five years later." Yeah. Uh-huh. So you you had something that people right absolutely connected right, with. and we
2: also, you know, that piece was in more than one show because it <laughs> became one of the two trademark pieces.
1: Which is the gamble? Is the the name of the routine? The gamble?
2: No. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah where you juggle three miscellaneous objects from the audience. We we would
2: ask the members of the audience to bring objects up onto the stage. Then we would have the audience choose by acclamation which three of those objects one of us would try to juggle. And would they get to
1: choose the person, the subject, Uh, who had to juggle?
2: No, it was normally Howard, Uh, uh, Ivan, although every now and then if he was injured, which would happen occasionally, there were times when... Paul did the juggling. There were times when I did the juggling, but it was mostly Howard.
1: Yeah, and so this is a piece that you have done, you did for years, and so audiences who were familiar with your show came bringing the most ridiculous Un- stuff that they could. Unfortunately, yes. When we wrote the piece, we
2: figured, you know, what are people going to have with them at the theater? Like a wallet, lipstick, a we'll, we'll shoe. Get, yeah. You know, we'll get coats, shoes, yeah. an occasional umbrella. No big deal. But then... When we started performing in the same theater for a month, doing eight shows a week, people would come see the show. We would get shoes and coats, and then someone would come back to see the show two weeks later. Um, and bring an octopus or something. With like. A dead octopus. <laughs> or
0: or uh, a live octopus. Or, or their baby. <laughs> no,
2: no live animals. Or a,
1: a grenade with a pulled.
2: <laughs> right. We, we did actually you know, have a few restrictions, uh, which developed over the years. Uh, things that we hadn't foreseen, but...
1: Can we ask what those restrictions were? No,
2: heavier than an ounce, no heavier than 10 pounds, no live animals... Nothing that would make the person juggling no longer be a live animal.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I got this dead possum. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh,
2: yeah, that marginal. Um, like, no, we'll give you a pass once. <laughs> yeah, e- I, each of those came out of an incident, of course. Um, we were performing years ago in the '70s at the Alligator Palace. Reverend Chumley started one of the a vaudeville theater in Leconnor Washington, uh, in the seventies mm. where a number of people, including ourselves performed. And there was a piece we were doing at the time, which was actually a magic piece. Uh, it was derived from the linking rings okay. uh, and it ended with rose petals being dropped over, uh, over someone's head. Mm-hmm. And Chumley, uh, bless his heart, would, started picking up one of the rose petals and then bring it as an object to juggle. Ah. Uh, Of course, it was actually a piece of red paper shaped like a rose petal, Mm. but it still, it would flutter in a way that made it uh, take a lot longer to fall through the air than more objects with more mass and less wind resistance. Yeah. And was almost impossible to juggle. (laughs) So that's when we put the uh, one ounce lower limit. Yeah. We were performing at the Guthrie Theater in, uh, Minneapolis. One day, two guys came up the aisle carrying between them a large rock that probably weighed somewhat over 100 pounds. Uh. <laughs> uh, that's now, did when, you
0: try and
1: juggle that? that?
2: That's when we put the... Uh, Ten pound weight limit. Well, Although, I think
1: that's you, how you know you've made it. I mean, like when people are familiar enough with your routines that they're coming with the objective to try and <laughs> they're s- buying tickets. Stump the Schwab, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're, actually, the, the most
2: insidious but legal I- item <laughs> was someone who worked at a muffler shop in Minneapolis took a length of a truck tailpipe bent it at a 45 degree angle, put an eight pound shot put inside of it and welded shut both ends. Wow. So it was large enough in diameter that you couldn't wrap your fingers all the way around it. You could just sort of grab it but not that firmly mm-hmm. and then when you caught it the shot put roll down
0: <laughs> oh, it,
2: hit the metal end and, and it would throw itself out yeah, of your hand of course it was basically impossible to jump
0: i like how this guy is sitting here engineering like the most yeah. impossible <laughs> juggling
2: uh, the second time that appeared on stage it was not given back to the audience at the yeah. end of the show
1: now the consequence for not successfully juggling the three objects that have been handed to you is what a pie in the face face. yeah yeah that's a lot of work to (laughs) firing up the metal shop (laughs) three three tries
2: to keep the objects in the air for the count of ten
1: yeah and i think when you try the muffler once you're like i'm not even gonna try again just just give me the pie in the face (laughs) (laughs) so you the Karamazovs have done it all they were you were in the movie were you around for the jewel of the nile oh yeah and
2: two and a half months in morocco and another two months in nice wow. wow
1: wow how was that
2: boring. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Morocco
1: is so boring. (laughs) No,
2: I mean, making a film in general. Yeah. A lot of sitting around. A lot of sitting around with very short periods of frantic action and Mm -hmm. then a lot of sitting around. Yeah. What we took to doing was because we had to ride horses and camels in the film on days when we knew we weren't going to be needed for several hours, we would try to take the horses out for Ah, a ride. Yeah. And the, the horses belonged to a group of Spanish stuntmen they brought their own horses to oh, cool. the film. Yeah. And so the first time, you know, the one of the Spaniards, eh, huh, these American actors, what do they know? Yeah. And sort of walked the the four of us, five of us actually, you know, uh, on horseback around a little bit. And then he realized that a couple of the group actually knew how to ride. Mm. I was not one of those, but I could <laughs> take it. And so gradually they just let us take horses out on our own. Because we said, you know, we need to get used to the horses. We're using them. We Uh, have to ride them on camera. Of course, of course. course. We need to take them to the market. We need to take take them to the glue factory. (laughs) But even though I was not, I was riding a camel in the film. It was much more pleasant to go horseback riding with the others. Of Uh. course, it did lead to a couple of odd things. Where one day we went out in full costume, complete with the World War One era rifles slung over our shoulders.
0: Just Um, going out to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah, well, we
2: we were out for a little ride to get used to it, and we were just been given the rifles. We needed to see what it was like having them bouncing on our back while riding. Uh And uh, we were in the far east of Morocco on the Algerian border. And at the time, the border between Morocco and Algeria was in dispute. And we were up on a ridge, and we suddenly realized that we weren't sure— whether we were in Morocco or Algeria, and we're dressed as basically desert Arabs, and we are carrying rifles, and maybe we should head back to the (laughs) film set, which we did in some haste.
1: How cool. What a cool experience 2 two yeah. months in Morocco. And you guys have been uh, you did Mr. Rogers also. Did you do that?
2: Uh, no, I, I had retired. Okay. I retired uh, before that show.
1: And were you around for the the Karamazov appearance on this on Seinfeld also? Uh, or? Not
2: Seinfeld, but the Smothers Brothers, Dolly Parton. Oh, wow. We did have some we would occasionally perform as an opening act. We preferred doing our own two-hour show, of course. But you know, in the early days, we did, I think we opened for the Chambers Brothers once, uh-huh. um, and then we we started to, we uh, performed to the Grateful Dead a few times. Yeah, uh, how did
1: that play as an as an opening act for uh, the Dead?
2: Ver- very well, actually, because
1: you have music. The Karamazov have music in yeah. the show,
2: and we actually worked out some because we would do some drumming while while juggling. juggling. Yeah, and super cool. When we were in London, we and had. A little time and the dead had more time we worked out some things with the two drummers from the dead yeah mickey hart billy kreisman yeah what we would do rather than usually opening we would they were notorious for taking very long breaks between their sets <laughs> ah. <laughs> so we would do like 20 minutes oh that's great in between yeah but then in london what we also did was in their second set doing their what people were Oddly referred to as a drum solo, even though there were two of them, mm-hmm. um, we came on and juggled and drummed with them for a while and went off. Oh, that's ah. great! So Mickey
1: and Bill would stick around, and then you guys. Would... Yeah,
2: it was, it was their
1: drum duo. Their drum oh, duo. Gotcha. <laughs> and okay. then
2: we would join them, uh, and so yeah, that, uh, that that's pretty exciting. Well. Right? Yeah. I
1: mean, being from that area and how popular yeah. they were. Yeah, and then it was to be much more relaxed
2: in London, where they didn't ha- weren't swarmed with fans. I mean, yeah, I mean, opening. The time we opened for them was, you know, like New Year's Eve at the closing of Winterland. Oh, wow. Which was completely insane. Yeah, I would imagine. And New Year's Eve at the Oakland Auditorium, just, you know, along with the Blues Brothers. Yeah. And, Did you ever
1: get to teach Jerry how to juggle?
2: Jerry, no. Uh, taught uh, uh, Billy Kreutzmann how to juggle. How cool is He, he that? learned really fast. Oh, I bet. Basically, drummers and mimes seem to be the fastest <laughs> learners. Cause they,
0: they understand how to move their body. Yeah. yeah. And
2: they understand rhythm.
0: Yeah, that oh, yes. ju- that juggling and, and
1: drumming routine, you know, you you guys are the pioneers of it. I see people do that all the time now, and I feel like that it's so, all comes from the Karamazovs. Well, not all.
2: I mean, Bobby May did
0: you know, what? So what is the juggling drumming?
2: Well, So I, what he did, which we could never do, was he did a headstand. Oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, and bounce juggled
0: Upside five balls.
2: Down. While he was upside down off of a drum. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's like
0: he's, if you were to flip the picture, it's like he's upright juggling and hitting a drum above his head, right. but he's but upside yeah. down.
2: It's harder than that, but yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just no, imagine we... doing a
1: headstand how hard that is. Yeah. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's start there with difficulty. <laughs> yeah.
2: so, so anyway, we were, uh, but yeah, we early on started mixing music and rhythm and juggling, worked out a piece where we put snaps on gloves so that you could hear the click when we caught something. Yeah, uh, super uh, cool. Uh, put bells on some of the clubs and w- were able to play music from the sound of the jug- of the clubs being thrown and caught. We got a concert grand marimba, made mallets balanced for juggling so that we could juggle the mallets while playing the marimba. It's uh, um, awesome. That's a, amazing. What yeah. We called the floor piano. Uh, long before big, mm-hmm. but yeah. and we actually played it where we put a pickup on the underside of each key, and I would play it by variously bouncing the balls off the different keys or tap dancing on yeah. the different keys uh-huh. or dancing on the keys while bounce juggling yeah. on the keys. Yeah, that's been
1: popularized now, too. I see that a lot in juggling routines with the people with the electronic keyboard on the ground yeah. and bounce right. juggling. Although, if
2: you look carefully, you'll see that a lot of them are sequenced. Yeah. It oh, doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what key it's rigged. It yeah. It doesn't matter where the ball bounces. It just it, makes it, the it, sound. It makes the next note, <laughs> whereas ours was actually yeah. mapped each key to a separate note. If you bounce the ball off the wrong key, you got the wrong note.
1: I would love to see the warehouse of failed ideas for the Karamazov (laughs) Brothers. I think that's that's where I want to tour. That's the museum I want to go to. (laughs) Because all the things that work, all the things that make it into the show... For every 10 minutes, there's an hour of failed ideas and failed experiments and things that didn't quite work or quite get the reaction you wanted. There was
0: the trumpet he bounced juggled onto (laughs) while someone blew through it.
2: There was a trumpet, actually. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they've gone down that road, Louie. I mean, it belonged to our manager in the late 70s, early 80s, Jim Ford. Actually, there was a band called The Mob. They split the rhythm section, got a new horn section, became Chicago Transit Authority, which became CTA, which became Chicago.
1: Oh, nice. Which
2: which is why I always thought that we should go from Fine Karamazov Brothers to Karamazov to FKB. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think the Russians still might come after you with that. (laughs) name. (laughs) Um, And so Jim Ford, who was an excellent trumpet player, part of that group, was uh, our manager for a few years. He said, oh, try, try this with juggling this trumpet. And he you know, pulled the trumpet and rejuggled it and dropped it a few times. You know. <laughs> and then we finally took it into to uh, get it repaired. The repair person looked at it and said, wait a minute. I know this trumpet. <laughs> no, no, this trumpet is worth, you know, like thousands of oh, dollars. No, oh no! it belonged to this musician.
1: <laughs> this is Disney's is. he know things? you have yeah. it. That, yeah, he let us use it. <laughs> he it he loves what passionate? happened to it? We have no idea. <laughs> this is a rare trumpet. There's
0: only two in existence. Yeah. The other one, the guy lent to a juggling troupe. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: So you, uh, you left the Karamazovs in the mid-80s, mid, mid 80s, early 90s?
2: Um, in 92, what happened was we had done Comedy of Errors. The other guys in the group were more interested in doing plays mm. with you know, a cast of 15, 20 people, an mm. outside director, a lighting designer, a costume designer, in part because they came into it as wanting to be actors. Uh, And also because they didn't like touring one-nighters, yeah. And they saw this as a way to be able to spend several months at a time in one city. Absolutely. Which for those who were married and had kids, their wives were saying, "Oh, you really don't want to? Yeah. Can we stay in one place?" It's a lot easier
1: to uh, easier sell to the significant other.
0: Yeah.
2: Whereas, because I wasn't married and I came into it from the juggling side, uh, I was more interested in the four-person. Internally self-directed or misdirected yeah, uh, juggling-based like shows, yeah. and so as they wanted to do more of the larger productions, we spent you know, like about three months a year working on those. And they wanted to do more of that. I didn't, and I said, "Great, you do that. I'll take time off. Mm-hmm. You know, I can get by on less money. Not a big deal. Yeah. But the juggling-based solo shows are bread and butter. That's where we're, you know, really making the money. And, yeah. And and that works for me." Uh, and they said, no, we want it to be, everyone does everything. Uh So I said, well, in that case, if that's what you want to do, I don't see you later. Uh, Uh, but then I kept filling in anytime someone was sick or injured or when someone else would leave the group, I'd go back on the road to fill in on all the shows that were booked and they'd find someone else and I'd stick around and help train the person and they would tour with us, and as they uh, were able to do more and more pieces in the show, they would come in and do a piece, and then I'd do a few pieces, and they'd do another piece, yeah, I, until they could do enough of the show that I, I could go home again.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, what brought you to Seattle? What was the and did the Caramazos make this their home at some point? Because I feel like this has always been a thorough way well, for
2: yeah. a lot of cities thought that that was (laughs) (laughs) the Karamazov home. Uh, They're
1: they're here again. They must live here. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So the group started in Santa Cruz. We started performing regularly in San Francisco and then started touring. We realized that we're going to be on the road enough that it didn't make sense for us to be paying rent on an apartment. And so we put our stuff into storage, stayed with friends the rare times we were back in the Bay Area and uh, spent about two years on the road after which we bought a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Oh, cool. And used that as our base for a few years. But then when we got a 40-foot tour bus, we needed a place to park it. Sam, who joined the group by that point, was originally from Seattle. Uh, Paul had spent summers in Seattle while growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Howard grew up in Los Angeles and wanted to move as far from there as possible. (laughs) And at the time, my girlfriend lived in Seattle, so the Seattle area, storm of yeah. Yeah. We couldn't find anything large enough in Seattle proper, and, but we realized we needed to be within two hours of an international airport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we ended up buying an old Ben breakfast in Port Townsend. Oh, cool. And used that as our base, uh, refurbished the barn into a rehearsal space and theater, and then when we because we'd be on the road nine months a year, we set it up in a way because we know our tour schedule far enough in advance that when we were on the road. It would be run as a bed and breakfast. Uh, that's cool. And we'd get booked in between tours, and we'd move back into our rooms.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Is that theater and bed and breakfast still there? It's still there. We sold it some years ago. Man, I want to start a successful juggling group that can afford to buy a theater. Theater <laughs> <And> <laughs> bed <Ben-Breck. laughs> <laughs> So, we won't take up all your time, but I just want to touch on a few things. We'll get into the creation of the Moisture Festival and sort of where it is today. But one thing, I the Karamazovs came back together in 2019 was the 50th year of the Oregon Country Fair, which is a big festival down. Uh, outside of Eugene, Oregon, and you were instrumental in kind of its success in the beginning, and you guys got back together, the original four. The original four. On stage the, one last time. The
2: first time we had performed as that group of four probably since 1980. Wow. That's wow. amazing. Before the, I was born. Some yeah. of the material we did, we hadn't performed since then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, you, have, you have to dust off your Gorbachev jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or,
2: uh, you know, so, somehow the Gerald Ford jokes don't really play anymore, <laughs> and the Reagan jokes—they
1: eh, yeah, still hey, probably play pretty still well. He's still and well right in, now. In oh, Just go,
2: uh, going back briefly, you're talking about. i about opening acts, and you opening for The Grateful Dead. We're probably the only group I know to open for both The Grateful Dead and Frank Sinatra. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a lot of crossover in yeah, huh. No, we got
2: a call one day asking if we could open. For Frank Sinatra, we said, are you sure you have the right flank, our brothers? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all you do. So we opened for Frank Sinatra at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, The first night, this was when Reagan was president. And opening night, of course, the Reagans were in attendance. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, And that's when we discovered that while political humor normally goes very well in Washington D.C., <laughs> apparently people consider it impolite to laugh at the president if the president happens to be there. Yeah, <laughs>
1: what? This is not the correspondence Dinner. This is well, this is yeah. just the theater show. Yeah. A Reference to our acting president?
0: Dead silence. <laughs> wow, times have changed. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> wow. So, uh, what was the difference in audiences between the Grateful Dead and Frank Sinatra's not, audience? Not a
2: lot of tie dye in the Frank Sinatra audience. Odor.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> general smell. <laughs> so that's that's pretty cool that you were able to get back together and do it one more time with them. That's yeah, fantastic. it was a lot of fun. And so we'll go to the Moisture Festival and my main question for the Moisture Festival Does when it began, did you ever foresee it becoming what it is today? No, of course
0: not. <laughs> now, when you did the first one, did you have a feeling of it, you were like, like this is something or was it just like, oh, we had fun?
2: Yeah, we, we had fun. We rented it a parking lot. We rented Chumley's tent. Yep. We did a few nights of shows. I was twisting the arms of friends to come yeah. perform at this new festival yeah. for no money. Uh, everyone had a great time. We didn't lose too much money. We thought that we would you know, maybe do it again. Mike Hale invited us to hold it in one of his warehouses. Mm-hmm. And so we built a temporary stage and uh, brought in some lights and sound and did two weeks of shows in there. And made back the money we lost in the first year.
0: <laughs> that's great. See, it's a solid business when you're yeah. profitable the second year. Yeah, absolutely. Well,
2: we, we we went to an interesting business model that was in part based on the Oregon Country Fair, where there was a long discussion one year at the Oregon Country Fair at the, at Chumley Land, what we called the stage back in 1976, about when we started, instead of each person or group doing their own act and passing the hat, we decided to do a combined show, and pass the hat. Ah. And then it was, okay, how do we divide the hat? It was traditional vaudeville. A solo act would get one fee. A duo act would not get twice that. They would normally get like one and a half times what a solo performer would get. Mm-hmm. So with groups ranging from you know solo to four Karamazovs, we decided that we would you know, that each person would get an equal share.
0: Okay, yeah.
2: And we managed to veto the idea that Chumley's dog should get a share. (laughs) Uh, Very progressive. (laughs) And so for the Moisture Festival, I suggested that if we just gave everyone a share and we took all the money from the whole festival, expenses, income, and any profit we would divide on a share basis among all the performers, it had several advantages. If the festival didn't make money, We wouldn't lose our shirts and Uh lose our houses uh, by having written contracts for fixed fees with all the performers. Yeah. It would be, we didn't have to negotiate separate contracts with all the performers. uh, And everyone knew they were getting the same amount. Yeah. And it also didn't matter whether they performed on like a Wednesday early in the festival when there might, when the theater might be half full Or Saturday night when it's sold out in standing room only. So there was no competition to I want to perform Saturday because I'll get more money than it was no matter what show you perform in, you'll get the same amount. It doesn't matter.
1: And it's amazing the the performers that you get. I mean, like some of the people that I look up to and am inspired by and model myself after, you get these heavy hitters in the variety world and they come for a few days to perform for what you're saying, just a, a, a share. Hopefully a good time. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, especially. and that's,
0: that's, I think, the secret to the success of getting performers in is you've made it a community and a, yes. a good hangout.
2: Yeah, yeah, the whole idea was it was, you know, the Moisture Festival was produced by performers for performers. It's nice that the audience enjoys it. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's back burner stuff. <laughs> that's why he's at every show right. watching. Uh, but the idea was... That, yeah, to get performers together, because variety performers these days don't really have any uh place to hang out together, absolutely yeah. you know, if they work, they either work corporate gigs where they're the might be the only performer they're on a cruise ship where they're the only variety performer they're in a variety show in Germany where mm-hmm. they get months of work with the same small group mm-hmm. of people, some of whom is difficult to communicate with because they're from different parts of the world. Yeah. There's no place for people to hang out. In the early days, we got a sense of that at the Oregon Country Fair. Yeah. Uh, But then, because the Oregon Country Fair also didn't really pay money, and they also did not pay travel expenses, it meant that, for example, when Offner, who lives in Maine, when he'd come to the country fair, but then when he got married, had a kid, and the country fair would not fly them out. Yeah, it's not uh, financially feasible. He, to, yeah, he you didn't know, want to make happen. You know, uh, spend thousands of dollars to come out and camp in the woods for a few days. <laughs> it's a tough sell to the life and kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, when the moisture festival was first being discussed, the structure set up, I said, if we invite someone, we have to pay their travel and feed them, yeah. house them, mm-hmm. show them a good time. You know, If they're treated well and if they don't lose money, and they're fed, and they get to hang out with friends, how much money they make is not as important.
1: Exactly. And I that's, think that's the key. As long as you don't lose money, and it's an opportunity to do fun yeah. shows, work with people, your colleagues that you might have not worked with mm-hmm. before, and get to hang yeah. out in a cool city around and, cool people.
2: And what we tell performers up front is, you know, if you get another gig that you want to take, that you need to take, take it. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. You know, even if you've said you're going to be here for this week, If something comes up.
1: And that is a huge relief, honestly. The amount of times I've had to call clients and be like... Hey, I'm going I have a TV show where I have a bit a month long gig, and they don't quite understand. Like, why would you cancel? Why this, would you
0: cancel on this, this $500 ju- gig for yeah. eight weeks at work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, like you're saying, is being ran by performers. So you coming at it from what a performer likes yeah. and yeah. needs to really make it an enjoyable experience. Yeah, yeah. Now,
2: something that I learned touring with the Karamazovs, because in order to open for Frank Sinatra, we had to not open forum at caesar's palace in las vegas because we couldn't get out of a contract with the yeah, theater for that uh, week. yeah
1: they don't care about your career they just care right. about their and also, particular events yeah. you know
2: th- and also theaters will have exclusivity clauses mm-hmm. where you can't perform in their quote-unquote market the area that they advertise to you, draw audiences from often for like two months before and one month after so if you're performing at a large theater in seattle you can't perform at a large theater in Tacoma Yeah, um, because there's enough audience, potential audience overlap that the theater wants to make sure that they they're have exclusive rights. Yeah,
0: absolutely. yeah, they're not yeah. bringing you in yeah. and then we, diluting Yeah, With probably.
2: the Moisture Festival, we take the opposite approach because we don't pay a lot. We say, if you want to take advantage of your plane ticket, when we fly you out here to do some other shows in the area, fine. Yeah. You can use your appearances at the Moisture Festival yeah. to promote a show at a nearby theater, we can structure your schedule to give you a night off yeah. if you want to Absolutely. perform it you know <laughs> somewhere else house concert vocal and Can where all...
1: where do you see the Moisture Festival going? I mean, it's it's already a huge success. You so it's already... at sixteen
0: years right now. Sixteen
1: years. You've have people from all over the world. You've sold out shows. You've expanded into burlesque and in different theaters. You've done it in different towns. What do you? What's the? Is is it continue to grow? Are you happy with where it's at? Yeah.
2: We we've tried very hard not to have it grow uh, <laughs> for the last some years because we certainly have enough. You no know, performers interested yeah. that we could run for several months, if not yeah. year round. I would imagine you
1: turn down more people than you yeah. accept. Which
2: we literally have to turn down more people yeah. than uh, we can uh, book for the festival. Mm. I knew things were getting serious. You know, the first few years I was twisting the arms of friends to come perform at this unknown festival. And then uh, as word started to spread among the performing community, somewhere around the sixth or seventh year, it seemed like we had turned a corner for two reasons. One was the local newspapers were using the Moisture Festival as a reference. They would write a review of another show and saying, well, it's not as fun as the Moisture Festival, <laughs> but or it's sort of like the Moisture And the other thing, you know, we'd get an occasional call from someone saying, I'm performing with Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. I'm sick and tired of doing the same thing every night, six mm-hmm. nights a week, 49 weeks a year. One of my weeks off falls during the moisture festival. Can I come out and have some fun? Oh yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So
2: said, sure. Come out, do what you want.
1: Yeah. Um, You're no longer seeking people out. you get now it's people, you know, the word is out that it's a great event. Yeah. Now,
2: now, I mean, there are still people that I invite or try to twist their arms to perform. Yeah. But often, you know, they're booked.
1: Yeah, yeah. of course.
2: Because some of the people that I'd love to have here actually do make their living this way <laughs> yeah. and might be performing under a six-month contract yeah. in Germany. We've also had people cancel at the last minute. It can be tricky.
1: Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for coming in and taking an hour to talk with us. We want to thank you for putting together the Moisture Festival because yes. we wouldn't be here without it. Well, we would be here, but, <laughs> but, not, not. <laughs> but not in this capacity. <laughs> but I feel lucky that I live in the town in which it, it happens because I get to see so many of my friends. Yeah in one place over a three week span and it's it's fantastic yeah. and it's it's the shows are amazing they're always well put together I'm amazed at the diversity of people that you draw from and that you put in a, one show together every show is drastically different and it's a unique experience and You're yeah right. we want to thank you for yeah, thank making doing all the legwork <laughs> so we can enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it Tim you thank know, you my, for my having us my pleasure and my pain yeah. and my pleasure <laughs> thanks for coming in buddy thank yeah. you Hey folks I want to thank you so much for listening to today's podcast real quick the moisture festival is dedicated to keeping the ticket prices to shows affordable
0: and they do that by relying on individual donations you can donate financially or volunteer to get more information go to the moisturefestival.org and click on the contribute button you'll get all the deets there
1: absolutely and if you want to just follow the moisture festival you can do that on facebook instagram youtube or you can just go loiter outside of the palladium <laughs> at hail <laughs> That's a way that you can follow them. If you want to find out more information on Louie and I, we also do a podcast on our own called The Odd and Offbeat
0: Beat podcast. That's where we talk about strange news stories of the day. You can hear us chat about all things weird. Absolutely. You can do that
1: at on and or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to find out about us individually where we're performing at, you can find Louie at com and that's with two X's.
0: And Matt's at comedystuntshow.com dot com. That's spelt regularly.
1: <laughs> so we would like to thank you so much for listening so much for your time and we hope to see you at the Moisture Festival soon. Be well.
0: Thank you for listening to Moisture Festival
1: Podcast and stay moist.